It's time for your NBA fix. This is the Big Show Daily Assist. Featuring all the latest news and insight on the association. Now joining the Big Show. Senior NBA writer for Sports Illustrated, Chris Mannix. On 97.5, 1280, The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. Your daily assist brought to you by Lee's Heating and Air. Check them out online, leesheatac.com. Let's get out of the Sprint special guest line. They make it safe and easy to get what you need online. Visit sprint.com for online services and local store availability. Joining us now from Sports Illustrated, our friend Chris Mannix. Happy Monday, Chris. How are you? What's going on, guys? Hey, Chris, we just got news uh, literally minutes ago that the Jazz officially did uh, uh, open up their practice facility. In fact, I'll read this uh, word for word again. A handful of Utah Jazz players participated in voluntary individual workouts today at Zions Bank Basketball Campus in accordance with Utah Department of Health and NBA regulation. Your thoughts on uh, some of these teams uh, trying to do what they can to get their players in? Yeah, it's no surprise um, when when teams – when states and cities and municipalities are allowing this type of stuff, there's no reason that the NBA uh, shouldn't be proactive in getting their players into safe and sanitized facilities. I mean, we've talked about this over the last few weeks. I mean, the last thing the NBA wants is to see, you know, Donovan Mitchell pop up at an Equinox to get a workout in because he wants to work out and the team facility is closed. There's just no reason that in a controlled environment, these players can't start trickling in. And look, I've talked to people and seen some of the rules that that the league is putting in place. I mean, you really are kind of isolated while you're doing these workouts. But you know, players, you know, I know and are chomping at the bit to to get any kind of action in. Uh, so this is, uh, in addition to being good for you know the integrity of the game, if it comes back in the next couple of months. It certainly is a safety measure to have these players, um, you know, go into a controlled environment. So the NBA essentially has told its players that there are only bad options, Chris, as it explores, uh, you know, resuming play, whatever the options are. Are you, uh, let's get your weekly update. Uh, How are you feeling about uh, the possibility of a postseason? You've said it from the beginning that you thought that that's essentially what it was going to be and it was going to be somehow truncated. What are your thoughts now? Yeah, I'm much more optimistic now about a eventual postseason than I was, you know, any time in the past. I mean, the, the call Adam Silver had with the players had a number of revelations, but it, the revelation that I took the, the the hardest, the strongest, was the sense that players got that the NBA was willing to stretch this out as long as it took to get a playoffs in. Uh, you know, there there really doesn't seem to be any kind of urgency, you know, within the league to have the season start next year anywhere close to on time. In fact, there's some people that believe within the league that the later it starts, the better. I mean, if you start in January or hell even February. Uh, there's a better chance of you know getting that fan revenue back than if you start in November or even December. So you know players that I talked to came away with this this sense that that you know this could be something that you know in mid to late June they could make a call on even early July they could make a call on. So obviously things have to improve dramatically for for the NBA to even uh, think about coming back. I mean, look, we're talking about players trickling into practice facilities you got to get them playing five on five um in these training sites to, to to even think about playing but 
I'll tell you what. I mean that that it, it really. I really got the sense off you know hearing about that call and talking to people that that listened to it that you know the, the league was was committed to finding a way to finish the season and finishing it with you know a seven game first round, seven game second round, all throughout. I mean they they really want to have a traditional postseason and are willing to wait as long as possible to do it. Chris Mannix with us on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Chris, I, I read uh, about Major League Baseball's plan to to get started again, and I, I read another piece about how it might be difficult, actually, to get the Players Association and the league on the same page to do it, and they were specifically mentioning a 50-50 revenue split, which players have never agreed to a revenue split before, and that might be the challenge. But as far as the NBA goes, does it seem like the league and the Players Association are on the same pl- page to you know, work together toward accomplishing this? Well, I think they're on the same page, but all it takes is one issue that they can't get past to, you know, change that, all that. And, you know, right now, you look at the, the relationship between Michelle Roberts and Adam Silver is much more civil and I think stronger than the relationship between David Stern and Roberts' predecessor, Billy Hunter. Um, so that they communicate a lot. Chris Paul and Adam Silver have a strong relationship, but you know, when, when Adam Silver on that player's call said that the NBA gets 40% of it, their revenue from, you know, gate receipts, I, that felt to me like a strong message to players. Like, we're losing a lot of money here. So you're going to have to, you know, do your part in making up the difference. Because, you know, when I talk to ownership sources, you know, one thing that keeps coming up is, yeah, owners are going to lose money off the NBA, but a lot of these owners own their buildings. And those buildings you know, usually provide several sources of ancillary revenue, whether it's a hockey team or uh, concerts or or whatever, that revenue's gone too. So owners, I think, are going to draw some pretty hard lines in these upcoming kind of talks about the finances that I can certainly see players bumping into and and taking issue with. So, look, I mean, we've we've seen negotiations for a collective bargaining agreement that, you know, began years in advance, you know, get bumpy even towards the end. This is effectively a new collective bargaining agreement they're going to have to draw up in the next six to eight weeks. Uh, and certainly in that type of timeline, with the type of changes that need to be made, I think you're going to see some, some differencing of opinion and, and some pushback from the players and some of the things owners want. Chris, in your conversations with various players around the league, do you get the sense that they are eager to play again? Very. You know, I, I read the quote from Shaq and have seen, you know, stuff that Mark Cuban said. I really think those types of comments are outliers in all this. Um, you know, look, there's a lot of reasons why owners want to get back. I mean, I think the most significant one is to, you know, help out with those local TV contracts and national contracts that they are going to have obligations to one way or the other, whether they're fulfilled in a shortened finish to this season or into next season. So, that's part of the motivation and players look they want to get paid and and they know that that those checks are already starting to get garnished and they'll continue to be garnished as as time goes on and no games take place so you know uh, there's a lot of money that's going to be lost no matter what but playing games is one way to mitigate that loss and i think as everybody or at least the vast majority of the people on the same page Chris, how ticklish is the testing issue? I know they want to, you know, have testing be a key component in the return, but also don't want to appear as if they're taking tests away from folks that need them. How critical is that issue before things can go? 
Oh, I mean, it's, it's everything, really. And it's not an issue of getting the tests, right? Like, the NBA can buy whatever they want. I mean, they, they can find a private outfit to sell them the 10,000 or 15,000 or 20,000 tests, whatever it is they need. Um, they have the resource to go out there and do it. But, you know, all along, the message I've been, getting, I've been getting is that, you know, if the optics are bad in all this, uh, they're not going to. They're not going to come back. I mean, they're not going to buy fifteen thousand tests to play a postseason in Vegas, while New York and Michigan and California are underwater, and and people in urban areas that you know make up a lot of the demographics of of their fan base are are struggling to get tests. Um, a couple things have happened. You know, the the testing has certainly improved. It's not, it's not where it needs to be, but it's trending at least in the right direction, especially with this, these antibody tests that are out there now. Um, and I think that another takeaway from the last couple of days is I feel like the NBA has moved the goalposts a little bit on where testing needs to be for them to come back. I mean, you know, weeks ago when this thing first started roaring, I was hearing, you know, like, look, it's got to be widespread. You've got to see it as available as popping into a CVS or a Walgreens and, and being able to get a test. Now you see the NBA allowing – teams in Orlando and Los Angeles and, and soon many others to test asymptomatic people and, and players, um, staffers and players rather. So the fact that they're willing to allow that for asymptomatic people uh, tells me that the goalposts have moved a little bit here, that, that if testing just improves to a, a certain level, the NBA is going to be willing to you know, open up its checkbook, buy the tests it needs, and get it done a lot of, a lot of the same ways that the UFC got it done this past weekend. So, Chris, I know you have a killer crossover. I know you can hit the 24-foot jumper. I, I know you have great court vision. Would you have loved to play alongside Michael Jordan? Uh, you know, I, I think after it was over, like most of the players in this documentary, I, I would have loved to because I would have probably walked away a better player I would have probably walked away with, you know, the championships, and, and that's something you can look back on that nobody can ever take away from you. I mean, I, how many championships Bill Wennington have? Three? You know, I mean, yeah. there are guys that, that rode the bench, you know, with Jordan that, that you know, collected rings and, and have those accomplishments. But at the time, yeah, not, not so much. But you could say the same thing about a lot of the players that are like that. I mean, Kobe was a lot like that, very difficult to – to deal with. He and Shaq collided on a lot of those things. Um, I think you certainly argue in their time, Carl Malone, John Stockton probably had issues with some teammates along the way. LeBron has not rubbed every teammate the right way in all his time there. I mean, it's great players demand greatness. I mean, Jordan did it at the highest possible level, but go back to Bird and Magic and Russell and I mean, read books about the Russell Celtics back in the day, what he dragged out of his teammates. I mean, you know, greatness wants greatness and, and they'll do whatever it takes to bring it out of you. Chris Mannix of Sports Illustrated with us here on the 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Chris, what do you think about the the story that's going around out there? Apparently John Stockton uh, did interview for this docu-series, uh, but did it kind of right before this whole COVID mess started, right at the, at the last minute. And uh, there's a story out there that he was resistant because he did not want to be in a, in a Michael Jordan, and these are his words, puff piece. What do you think about John Stockton's attitude toward it all? <laughs> I mean, look, it's understandable. Um, you know, I, I think Puff Piece might be a little strong, but it certainly is a documentary that's done through the prism that Michael Jordan chooses to let us see it through. 
Um, he's an executive producer of this doc. You know, you've heard the director say he has had to ask Michael's permission to interview certain people. And there's certainly a number of things you can question right off the bat. I mean, I question, you know, there's really nobody defending Jerry Krause in this entire documentary. I mean, maybe episodes 9 and 10, you know, bring something out. But you'd like to see somebody defend a guy that, you know, built the championship team that exists in Chicago. I mean, Jordan's getting plenty of credit. How about the guy that drafted, you know, Pippen and, and Horace Grant and traded for Dennis Rodman and, you know, I ID Tony Kukoc when when he, when he ID'd him and brought him into the mix. I mean, he, he had some misses to be sure, but that's some great, you know, general managership. And look, there are some other little things that you can nitpick on. I mean, look, there like Jack McCallum, my colleague over at Sports Illustrated, has uh, a podcast series out right now. It's really good. It, in it, he has. Like, he has audio of Michael Jordan, and I'm paraphrasing that I've only read about it, I haven't listened to it, but he has audio of Jordan saying, uh, effectively, I kept Isaiah off the team, the 92 Dream Team. So, like, if you know that exists, and in, in a way it exists because even if you didn't have the podcast audio, you can interview Jack McCallum. I mean, Jack McCallum is a Hall of Fame basketball writer who was, like, the voice of basketball for the better part of two decades. Maybe interview him and get his take on all that. I mean, there, there certainly was a measure of of objectivity missing. But, look, that's the way it goes in, in documentaries nowadays. It's unfortunate because, you know, I think the best documentaries are done when they're completely objective. But nowadays, whether it's Kobe Bryant's Muse documentary or, you know, some of the, the later year Muhammad Ali stuff, I mean, it's to get cooperation from these athletes, you need to work with them. And working with them taints the objectivity of it. So it sounds like John Stockton has the same mindset and, and thought, thought process of this as Ken Burns did, you know, when Ken Burns said what he said uh, about the documentary. So you just have to understand, when you're watching it, be entertained by it. It's great theater. Michael is incredibly compelling when he's on camera. But understand, you're not getting the unvarnished truth. Man, I'll tell you, that one part when he was saying he was sort of justifying his way of leader leadership, uh, Chris, like you were talking about, demanding greatness from his players, from his teammates, I mean, and, and uh, just driving the team forward. Uh, at the end, when he, when he had that moment that really seemed, I don't think he's a good enough actor to fake it, when he said, hey, if you don't want to play the way I wanted to play for championships, yeah. then you don't have to. And then he, he gets emotional and he says, break. Uh, at that moment, it reminded me who was in control of this production. But secondly, it really said that his competitiveness and his demands placed upon his teammates came from, from deep within. It wasn't some sort of show. It, he meant it. No, he, he absolutely meant it. And, look, again, he's not the first superstar to operate like this. I mean, Larry Bird, you know, in the middle of a finals, called his teammates a bunch of women. Like, he, this is these, guys, these stars are cut from a different cloth. They just are. And, and because they are so driven and work so unbelievably hard at succeeding, they expect you to do it or else they don't want you – on their team. And look, I, I get Michael's approach to, to practices. If you're not going to be physical in practice and take bumps in practice, how are you going to succeed against the New York Knicks? I mean, you practice effectively what you preach. You've got to go out there and, and face the most physical guys in the world. You might as well train for it in that particular manner. So I, I, I can respect you know, everything he did. It's not, it's not for everybody. I mean, Tim Duncan was a pretty damn good leader and won a lot of championships, and you know, he was never like that. But uh, for a lot of guys throughout the years, that's been their way of leadership. And 
a lot of times it's been effective. From your study, uh, Chris, did you think that the media treated Jordan fairly during those that period of time when his father was murdered and then he went off to play baseball? Do you think he was because I got a little bit of the edge going the other way that the media was out of line with uh, with some of those uh, either suspicions or accusations? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I certainly wasn't around covering that at the time, but uh, you know, I saw Brian McIntyre, who was the former head of PR, a guy I have a lot of respect for. I, I worked with him uh, as a reporter and as he was a league official for a number of years. And you know, I think he said something along the lines that it wasn't the media's finest hour. Look, unless you have hard evidence or unless there is a credible report that connects, you know, Jordan's gambling to the death of his father, it is reprehensible to try to connect the two because what you're doing is effectively saying that Jordan is responsible for the death of his father. And that that's a pretty scumbag thing to say at the least, and certainly a, a poor journalistic or poor ethical thing to do um, is no matter what. So, yeah, I mean, some of the headlines I saw and some of the, the, the columns that were shown on there, it, it, it's not a good look. It's just, I mean, you've got to, if you're going to connect those dots, you better have a credible source or there better be credible reporting that as a columnist you're parroting uh, to, to, to make those types of insinuations. Chris, as always, thank you so very much, and we'll catch up with you next week. Anytime, guys. Chris Mannix joins us each and every Monday here on The Big Show on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Yeah, he hit that pretty hard, that uh, Jordan's leadership style, that's one way to do it, and that there have been other demanding players before Jordan, and there will be more that will have and will come uh, after him. Uh, You don't have to do it that way. Like he said, Tim Duncan probably didn't lead that way. But uh, for Jordan, that was the way he chose to go, and some of his teammates were uh, a little irritated by that. I think Horace Grant was one of them, but uh, others probably along the way. You heard the way they spoke of Jordan, and yet, like Chris just said, they've got rings on their fingers because of him. Gordon, as as the godfather of uh, Utah Sports Radio and uh, a leader on this station, how would you describe your leadership style? Hey, it's <laughs> it's balls to the walls, man. Pretty hard nosed. Pretty oh, hard nosed. Come on, shape up. Let's just say that, that uh, you, you know, you, you follow Gordon or a physical altercation is coming your way. I'm not asking anybody else on this stage to do anything that I don't do myself. All right. I, I just want to make that clear. All right. I, you can call me all the names in the world, but we're not the best radio station in Utah for nothing. Tell them about the time you punched Kevin in the face. Oh, well, I didn't do anything he didn't deserve. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Big thanks to uh, Chris for jumping on with us. Uh, We'll get more for you coming up next. This is The Big Show. Gordon Monson, Jake Scott, 97.5 and 1280 The Zone.